Father, we now have come to the place where we open up our hearts to your word. We know that in it, everything that pertains to life and godliness is found through the knowledge of you. We need to be fed as sheep. We need to be led to green pastures. I pray, Father, that you would help our minds to retain, as well as our hearts to rejoice in the things that we hear, the words of truth that your spirit would speak. We thank you for the work that you are doing and have done here. And uh, it's obvious, Lord, that you have done it. We rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen. As we saw last week, the time for deliverance for the children of Israel has come. They had been in bondage for years. It got worse and worse. The Egyptians turned the Israelis into slave uh, laborers, building their cities with bricks made out of just earth and uh, eventually they took their straw away and it says that they made them serve with great rigor. And now the time for deliverance has come and so what does God do? Does he send a mighty angel like Gabriel? You know, sometimes I wonder at the methods of God. I think God could get a lot more accomplished a lot quicker if he would just use angels. Send Gabriel. For instance, he could evangelize the world so much easier. Now this is just me speaking, this frail human. If he would hang, say, 10 billion watt speakers from the moon and have angels sort of buzzing back and forth preaching the gospel. And there will come a time, actually, in the tribulation period where God will send an angel throughout the earth to proclaim the everlasting gospel that every single creature on earth will be able to hear. But God doesn't send Gabriel to deliver the children of Israel. God sends an 80-year-old failure. One who at one time tried on his own to deliver the children of Israel. One who tried in the power of his own flesh and strength and failed. But now God calls him again in chapter 3, appears to him in this burning bush episode and commissions him to be a spokesman. The basis for God's choice is contrary to human reason. Proof of that? Just look around. Look around at who God has chosen tonight here. You and I wouldn't choose us if we were God. We'd say, no, uh -uh. there's better than that. Would you have chosen Peter or some of the other apostles? These were the most unlikely to succeed. Yet, the basis for God's choice is that the more unlikely you are, the more God gets the glory. And one thing God will not share with anyone else is His glory. God doesn't want people looking at a man, a pastor, an evangelist, a group and going, wow, look at that awesome vessel. Those are the kind of people, oh, no wonder God uses that person, that person so educated or so awesome. No, God chooses people that really are rejects often so that he will get the glory. 
And I love the story of the disciples when they were fishing and they caught nothing. And Jesus said, cast your nets on this side. And they caught so many fish, the nets were about to break. And the disciples said, it's the Lord. That's the reaction God wants when he wants to do his work now. People come to this church and they see me. And they go, it's the Lord. It's got to be the Lord. This guy's kind of a dingbat. And people are always trying to figure out why God has done here what he has done. And I get people, we've been written up in church growth magazines as the fastest growing church in the United States during a period of time in the late 80s. And we've had pastors come and people, what's the secret? And I say, I'm still trying to figure it out. I have no idea. It's the Lord. And so God chooses Moses so that the world would marvel that it was him and not Moses. And there's more. Even if you fail, God has a long history of using people who have failed. Maybe you've tried something in the past. You've said, okay, I'm going to do God's work, and you fell flat on your face. You misrepresented him. You failed. And somewhere along the line, you've gotten the mistaken notion that one strike and you're out. Not so. God used Jonah. God was determined to use Jonah. Listen, Jonah said, no, 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 I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I don't want to go to those Ninevites. I'd rather just take a little cruise on a prince's ship and go to Tarshish. 2,000 miles in the opposite direction rather than 500 miles in the right direction. But God is persistent. God will wrestle with you. Sometimes God is so determined to use a person that he'll just chase after him and get him to a point where you'll just say, okay, okay, you can use me. Not that you're some great special instrument. God just wants to prove his grace, and so he'll choose you. And God will often be persistent. God has been called the God of the second chance. I'd like to rephrase that. He's the God of the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and just keep going. God will give you so many chances on this earth, and so it is with salvation. God will give people many, many chances to receive him now. You have tons of chances. There will come a time, however, when you have no chances, and that time is death. And it's appointed unto man once to die. After this, judgment. Nobody can pray you out of purgatory into heaven. You can have indulgences set or whatever. It won't work. You get chances here and now. And you get lots of them. And after that, the Bible says there's judgment. Now as we read these verses tonight in these chapters, you're going to see a different Moses now. Forty years have made him into a different kind of a man. He's not so excited anymore about doing the job. In fact, he has several excuses why he shouldn't do the job. God now calls him, and instead of saying, great, I'll go kill an Egyptian, he just says, no, I, this won't work. You can't send me. Now Moses, verse 1, kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Have you ever thought about Moses' daily routine? What he was used to in Egypt, everybody knew him. He had the wealth of Egypt, the education of Egypt. He had his own private chariot, probably. Now he's watching a flock in the middle of the desert. 
day after day for 40 years, the same bah, the same desert, the same smell, the same daily routine, bringing the sheep out to the grasslands, trying to find new grazing territory, bringing them back. How different it was from his earlier upbringing when he had everything at his disposal. All the resources of Egypt. Yet, all of this is in preparation. Because being in Midian, he had the opportunity to discover the Sinai Peninsula and go to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And there he would see the topography of the land. Very helpful. As one day he would lead the children of Israel through that very same area into the promised land. Also, Moses needed to be taught humility. As we said last week, you could divide Moses' life up into three episodes, 40, 40, and 40. The first 40 years, he was in Egypt being trained to be somebody. The next 40 years, God took him to the backside of the desert to show him that he was a nobody. And you'll see that he believes that at this point. And then the last 40 years, God took this nobody and showed him what he could do with him, that he could make somebody out of someone who said, I can't do it. I'm not qualified. Um, I find it interesting that Moses is a shepherd. I'll tell you why. Moses has now become the very thing he had been taught in Egypt to despise. Did you know that the Egyptians despised shepherds? We read that back in Genesis. Do you remember when the brothers of Joseph came down from the land of Canaan over to Egypt to see their brother Joseph? And as they were having a meeting... And it was time for lunch. The Egyptians set the sons of Jacob, the brothers of Joseph, at a separate table and didn't eat with them because it says shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. There's probably several reasons for that. We don't need to get into it. But it's interesting that Moses is doing what he probably thought, I'd never do that. You could never get me to be a shepherd. And here he is as a shepherd. Leading sheep. Of course, soon he will be leading other sheep. God's sheep. Two and a half million of them. It's no mistake that Jesus calls us sheep and refers to himself as a shepherd. I have been told by many people who've raised sheep who are Christians that uh, God has a great sense of humor. They say, you know, sheep are the dumbest animal that there is on the farm. They're very timid. They will get in groups. They require absolute leading and guidance. They wouldn't do anything on their own. They just kind of follow the leader. And they require strong leadership. And uh, the more I discovered about sheep, I just thought, phew, it's almost an insult. But no, it's not. When you discover the Lord is my shepherd... I don't think that's an insult. I think David said, okay, I recognize who I am. Lord, I need you to lead me. You be my shepherd. I don't want to belabor the point too much, but please let the Lord be your shepherd. Don't let another sheep be your shepherd. I'm not your shepherd. Yes, I'm a pastor, and that does speak about being a shepherd of God's flock, but I'm also a sheep. I follow the Lord. I need to rely upon him as well. I often have in my office stacks of phone messages and stacks of mail. And sometimes it's all I can do just to narrow that thing down to a couple inches. And I try hard. And I know there's people who want a letter back or a phone call. And they call me, never returns my call. 
Sometimes, especially if I go out of town, that baby gets pretty high. Why didn't you call me? I tried. But you know, whenever I've tried to get a hold of God, I never have a problem. He's always on the other end of the phone. I never get a secretary in heaven that says, I'm sorry, God's booked up. It'll be three weeks before you can see God. He's just very busy. There's a Billy Graham crusade this month, and he's listening to his prayers all week long. You just, you just can't meet with him. God is always available. And God is the only one who can be that available. I cannot be. As much as I like to be, I can't be. And with seven assistant pastors, we still can't be. But the Lord is your shepherd. And every true pastor will seek to have the flock form a dependence upon God rather than upon men. Moses is going to learn about leading human sheep, and it will be very different. Now, it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So we looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Now, this is the day when God is calling Moses and getting a hold of him. It's an ordinary day. There's no indication whatsoever that this day is going to be any different from any other day Moses has experienced. It's just a normal day. He's taking the sheep out. He's going to find pasture for them. He wants them to feed. Yet, on this ordinary day, God is about to intervene in Moses' life dramatically and change things for Moses incredibly. God will not always warn us when he breaks into our life with a change of plans. God doesn't knock on your door and say, excuse me, I'd like to lead you in a different direction. Do you mind? After all, he's the Lord. He'll just break in and do things differently. I, I remember the time, for instance, when I got a phone call. I lived in Huntington Beach, about three blocks from the ocean. And I got a phone call one evening from Dr. Roderick Farley. He said, this is Dr. Farley. Do you remember me? I'm Lenya's dad. Oh, yes, Dr. Farley, how are you? Fine, I'll make it short. Um, I don't want to butt into your business. However, my daughter still has feelings for you. I know you dated her a couple years back. And uh, she feels like the relationship hasn't been brought to closure. It doesn't seem like you communicate well to her. And uh, I would appreciate it, since she has a desire to date other fellows there in Hawaii, that you would uh, write her a caller and tell her it's on or off. I said, well, we haven't dated for a long time. I mean, it's obviously off. But I think you owe it to her to communicate. I said, Dr. Farley, I really appreciate the temerity of making such a phone call and being that forward. I appreciate a father that would love his daughter that much. Certainly I'll give her a call. And I hung up and I got thinking, she still likes me. <laughs> Isn't that weird? And it just completely threw me in. That night I wrote her a letter and she wrote back about a week later and I wrote her another letter and soon I called her and soon she moved back to the mainland and soon we got married. Just out of the blue, that phone call was an act of God in my life. I'll never forget the night I got a phone call from a guy named Kent Bagdazar. Again, living in Huntington Beach. Got a phone call and he said, Skip, I'm moving to Albuquerque. I said, why? He <laughs> said, well, I'm going to take over this radio station that we have purchased, and just it's going to be a, it's a new adventure. 
Hey, that's great. God bless you. See you later. Hung up. God's best to you. <laughs> As I hung up, I just began again to think and to pray, and I thought, I wonder. I've been looking for an area, just, I've been looking for some place that I could leave Southern California for and go and just start a Bible study. Who knows? I don't know. Nah. called me about a week later, and he said, can I come over? I said, sure. So he came over, and he said, you know, I told you I'm moving to Albuquerque. I was just thinking, maybe you ought to move with me. We ought to be roommates. And you could start a Bible study there, and I could do the radio station. You could work in radiology and just make an adventure together. And I said, well, Ken, actually, I've been praying about it for a couple weeks. And um, I'll put out some resumes. Let's see what happens. Well, the long and short of it is I eventually moved out here. But it was that phone call that kicked into gear all sorts of things that the Lord put on my heart to do. Who knows what an ordinary day might bring? Just get the sheep, let's go to the grasslands, and all of a sudden, what is that strange sight over there? Looks like a fire. Let's go check it out. Verse 3, Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Just gazing over the terrain, he saw that interesting sight. This bush with a fire in it, but there was no consumption of the bush itself. And he thought, yeah, I've never seen anything like that. Usually, out in this wilderness, these things burn so quickly. Don't even know what caused the starting of this fire, but that bush is still there. It's not burning up. As he got closer, God started, the bush started talking to him. Now that's a strange occurrence. You might look around at that point to see if anybody's around you. Because you might feel foolish talking back to the bush. Especially when it knows your name. Notice he says, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. That ordinary desert became suddenly sacred because of God's presence. You know, that concept has changed my thinking at different times in my life. There were times when I had jobs that I hated, and I wondered, God, why am I here? Couldn't you give me a job that's better than this? And as I think about this principle, my heart became convicted that any place, even the middle of the desert like Midian, can be a great place if God's there. You know, a lot of times people go to Hawaii to find paradise, or they go to the Caribbean, and I'll tell you, those places are pretty beautiful. But if you're ever in a place like that, apart from the will and the calling of God, they can be absolute misery. The best place is right where God wants you. Take your shoes off. This is holy ground. And so Moses did that. Now, notice, by the way, that uh, it speaks about the angel of the Lord. Look back in verse, uh, verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. Now, let me explain that. There are times that you will read about in the Old Testament where there's this strange occurrence of the angel of the Lord 
who in one case will speak as a representative of the Lord, in another case he will say, I am the Lord, and will be worshipped as the Lord. And putting all of the scriptures together, it would seem as if there are several visible manifestations of God. I didn't say in human form, but just in some visible form. Some call them Christophanies, that is the appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, or simply a theophany. It's just this visible manifestation of the Lord. And it seems that it takes on different forms. For instance, Abraham, you remember when God wanted to make a covenant with him. He saw this burning torch going in between the dead carcasses of animals, and God spoke to him. In Joshua, there is that uh, angel of the Lord who's called the captain of the Lord's army. Some visible manifestation of a military warrior. And Joshua takes his feet off because, again, the angel says, take your feet off. You're on holy... Not your feet off. You couldn't do that. (laughs) Go ahead, take your feet off. You won't need them. Just walk on your ankles. What do you do? You can't recover from something like that. Um... Take your shoes off, your sandals off. And it says that Joshua worshipped this messenger or this angel of the Lord. Then there's Jacob. When Jacob was moving across the land and he sent his family over the Jabbok River, it says, a man met with him and wrestled with him till the breaking of the day. And it wasn't until he, you know, sort of got him in a hold and dislocated his hip. that he was ready to give up. Before we move into the next few verses, there's something I want to say about this reverence of God. The approach that Moses has toward God is one of reverence. He worships. He takes his sandals off. He's afraid to look with his face, and he bows down, and he worships the Lord. It's not a frivolous kind of an approach, only to say this. God wants to be your friend, but never forget he's your sovereign Lord. Why do I say that? Because I watch some Christians make frivolous light of the intimacy of God. Oh, yeah, my old buddy God. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, Jesus said, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. But you approach God not only with intimacy, but with reverential intimacy. He is sovereign Lord of the universe. Your friend, yes, but isn't it interesting that although Jesus said, I I don't call you servants, I call you my friends, that Peter and Paul, when they wrote their epistles, how did they introduce themselves? Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He didn't say, by the way, I'm God's friend. He said, I'm his bond slave. Oh, yes, there was an intimacy they enjoyed, but the approach was nothing frivolous. They were bond slaves. Moreover, he said, verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. God says, I've seen, I've heard, and I'm going to act. How many times have we been in a situation and we thought, God doesn't care? God doesn't see. God doesn't hear. I prayed so long, it doesn't work. I've talked to people who are going through suffering. They've come in for counseling. I talked to this one lady I remember. I said, let's pray. She said, oh, don't give me that prayer stuff. I've tried that. 
well, what do you want me to counsel you? Just do your own thing then? That's as good as it gets. Where's that trust? God says, I'm concerned. I've heard. I see. I know what they're going through. And I'm going to act. I've come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Termites. Oh, that's not in there. Excuse me. These are all tribes that were often under the one heading Canaanites, the land of Canaan. And they were sectioned off in different uh, city-states and areas, which when we get to the book of Joshua, we'll see which inhabited which. Uh, Jebusites, the area around Jerusalem, or ancient Jebus, and so forth. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Forty years have passed. He was a shepherd. He was hanging out. He probably thought, it's all over. I tried it once. I'll never be used by God again. Now at 80 years old, Moses, I have a job for you. Now, why did God appear to him in the midst of a burning bush? Well, in the scripture, fire is a symbol of the presence of God. It says in the New Testament, our God is a consuming fire. Do you remember what happened when Moses went up to Mount Sinai? It says that fire descended, God descended upon Mount Sinai in fire. And it was completely enraptured in smoke. But also, I look at it another way. Moses had once tried to light his own fire. He tried to do it on his own. I'll make it, I'll do it, I'll do it. And he failed. He flamed, as we say. Now here's this perpetual fire burning and not consuming the bush. As if to say, Moses, the power that is necessary to deliver the children out of Israel, out of Egypt, takes a lot more than one strong-armed guy killing an Egyptian. I'll go with you. You won't burn out. Now there's a series of excuses in the next few verses. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of yourself in Moses. I think I see a lot of myself in Moses because there have been times where I've been reluctant as God has pushed me. But again, the thing about God is that he's lovingly persistent. And the beautiful thing is that, you know, listen, if I were God, I would have just said, forget this guy. I mean, he doesn't want, he's coming up with five excuses. Just leave him alone. I can always find somebody who's willing to do it, who has a heart for the ministry. But God is as interested in the worker as the work. He's not like some bosses, producer, you're fired. God might fire you, but then he'll work to restore you. And now he's ready for him again. Verse 11, here's the first excuse. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? What a contrast. Forty years ago when he killed that Egyptian, it was as if to say, look who I am. I can kill an Egyptian. Let me at him. He was cocky. He was self-sufficient. Now he says the opposite. Who am I that I should lead the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses has learned an important lesson. 
He is weak apart from God. Do you believe what Jesus said? Without me, you can do nothing. I wonder. How much do we try apart from his strength? How much do we try apart from leaning on him in prayer and trusting him? Oh, it's no big deal. Hey, relax, God. Take a rest on this one. I got it wired. I've done this a whole lot of times before. Without me, you can do nothing. But Jesus uh, says, Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. I found something that when you are self-appointed, you take it upon yourself. This is what I've decided to do for God, apart from a motivation of the Spirit of God within you. You will often run into it impetuously, not counting the cost, and that's always a failure, isn't it? Remember the man who came to Jesus? He said, I'll follow you wherever you want me to go. What did Jesus say? Great. Say this prayer right now. He said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. As if to say, count the cost. Don't rush into this unless you know what you're doing. The opposite is to, when God calls you, come up with excuses why you can't do it. And that's where Moses is at at this point. He's bouncing between two extremes. He was self-confident at one time. Now he has no confidence at all. What's the balance? What's the balance of that? Being confident in the Lord. Yeah, Lord, I know I'm weak, but hey, if you call me to do it, it's your strength. I'll go for it. But he wasn't at that point yet. Let's apply that. Do you ever feel inadequate? I feel inadequate most of the time. Paul said, who is sufficient for these things? And I look at this assembly and the work here, I often scratch my head and think, did you get the right address? I'm not sufficient for this. Lord, what responsibility? I'm the most irresponsible person in my high school class. I was Mr. Irresponsible. Are you sure you know what you're doing? You sure I can do this? God always reminds me, oh, you can't do this. But I can. And I'll strengthen you. Never hide behind your inadequacies. Remember when Jesus said, tell these people to sit down, let's feed them. How are we going to do it? We have a few loaves and fishes. What are they among so many? Well, just... Give them to me and you'll find out. Have you ever thought that about your life? What am I among so many? How could I ever make a difference? Well, just let me have you for a while, the Lord would say. Let me work with you. Let me break the loaves and fishes and distribute them. And see what I can do with so little. So that again, people will say, it's the Lord. So he said, verse 12, here's God's reply. I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. I love it. Moses says, I don't have the capabilities. God says, but you'll have my companionship. That's the issue. It's not who you are, it's who God is. Lord, who am I? It's not the issue, Moses. I'll be with you. And When you have brought the people out of Egypt, here's the token. You'll serve God on this mountain, Mount Horeb. Later called Mount Sinai. I'm sure the disciples felt like Moses. Imagine what it would have sounded like 
for Jesus to tell 12 fishermen with no education, little spiritual perception, these words. You guys, got a job for you. Okay, here it is. 12 fishermen. Go into all of the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Huh? We've never been outside of Israel. All the world, whew, that's a pretty big place. We're so inadequate. Who are we? But what did Jesus say? Lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Peter, James, John, it's not who you are, it's who I am. You have my presence with you. I wish we'd grasp that. Listen, God doesn't live here. The presence of God is not confined to an assembly of people. When you leave this building, God will be with you. God promises to be with you to the end of the age. David declared in Psalm 139, If I make my bed in hell, you are there with me. I can't get away from the presence of God. He's omnipresent. When I was a kid, my mother, when I used to run and play games inside the church, because I was forced to sit inside the big church, and I was bored, she said, don't run in the house of God. And so I got to look at the church building. This is God's home. Let's go to God's house today. This is the house of God. No, God lives in you. You're the house of God. This building is just a tin structure. It just serves a purpose for us to get together and be fed and nurtured in the word of God and worship the Lord. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives in you. And when you walk out of this building, you're not leaving God's house. God is with you. He dwells in you. Now, for most people, a burning bush and an audible voice from God would have been enough. Okay, I said, who am I? But you know, I'm convinced now. I got an audible voice, burning bush. I'll do it. But not Moses. He wasn't an ordinary guy. Look at the next excuse. Verse 13, Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say, What is his name? What shall I say to them? At this point, Moses is thinking ahead of possible conversations that might occur. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He just is thinking, now, what if I get into a situation and they say, uh, prove it. What's his name? What am I going to say? Now, the gods of Egypt all had names, and the Egyptians could identify the gods of Egypt by their names. There was Amun-Ra, the sun god. There was Apis, the god that looked like a bull, of whom no doubt the... Uh, golden um, calf in the wilderness was shaped after. There was Heka, a god that looked like a frog. And you'll, as we go through the plagues of Egypt, you'll see that God judges all of the gods that they identified. And so knowing that the Egyptians had identifiable gods, Moses is thinking, okay, what if I get into a situation I don't have all the answers, and they ask me this question, who God is, what am I going to say? What's your name? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Lord, what's your name? I am. This is a very difficult Hebrew word to translate. It's best translated by 
I am who I am. The name of God, that, that is exactly how God's name was pronounced, we do not know. Some have said it's Jehovah. Actually, that's probably not even close. It is probably Yahweh or Yahweh. We don't know because in the Hebrew Bible, there are only consonants and no vowels. And we would transliterate it in consonants YHVH, what they call a tetragrammaton. This unutterable name of God. In fact, the Jewish people never uttered the name of God. Not only were they not frivolous in their approach, they so worshipped God and they so revered God and feared Him that they wouldn't even say His name. And so they dared not even write out, every, they just wrote YHVH. And when they got to the name of God and when they were reading publicly, they would bow their head and for whatever it was, Yahweh or Jehovah, they would just say the name, Hashem. Hashem. They felt their lips were too impure to even say the name of God. But translated, it would mean, I am who I am, or the becoming one. Eternal existence. I am who I am. If you were to translate this in Greek, by the way, it's ego emi. And when the Septuagint, about 280 BC, was translated from Hebrew into Greek, I am who I am was translated ego emi. That's why the Jews were so upset when Jesus said, Before Abraham was, ego emi. He was claiming to be eternal God in human flesh. That's why they took up stones to kill him, because it was blasphemy in their sight. I am who I am, the becoming one. God will become to you whatever you need. Do you need strength? Then the Lord will be your strength. Do you need provision? Then he'll be Jehovah Jireh, or Yahweh Yireh in Hebrew as his name is in Genesis, the Lord, our provider. Do you need righteousness because you have sinned? Then he will be to you Yahweh Titsidkanu, the Lord, our righteousness. And a fascinating study is to study the names of God as revealed in the Old Testament. Whatever you need, God will become to you. Now he says in verse 15, you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Now, that's the covenant name of God. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Say those names. They'll understand who you're talking about. Because there have been 400 years of promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God is not slack concerning his promises. He's about to fulfill before we go on, just a word about his excuse. Often as Christians, we are reluctant to move out for the Lord and to do his will because we have this excuse. I don't have all the answers. What if they ask me a question and I can't answer it? I'm going to look really dumb and I'm going to be embarrassed. And I don't want to embarrass God, so I'll wait till I know the answers and then I'll go out. But the more you study about the Lord, the more you realize there are more questions that you can't answer. Again, the answer is really the presence of God. I remember when I first went witnessing, the very first night, it was like pulling teeth to get me to share my faith. I was a brand new Christian, and some friends put me with a whole bunch of other people in the back of a Volkswagen bus with no seats so we could cram as many people as possible in this thing. And we went out to a shopping center, and the guy in the driver's uh, seat said, Get out! 
What do you mean get out? Do what? Preach the gospel. What? Here? This is Thrifty Mart. I'd never done it before. I went with a fellow who had. And I remember the first time I shared my faith. I shared my little testimony and I think somebody asked me a question about the Genesis record evolution. I just thought, I knew it. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. And I just had to say, you know, I don't know. But I'll go find out and I'll talk to you again. And you know, I was asked a question I couldn't answer. And so what did I do? I just started digging and studying until I had the answer and I was satisfied with it. And I felt better equipped. I went out again. This time, they, nobody asked me that question. I was all ready. I had the right answer. So, come on, where's that question? I kind of even hinted at this question in case they might ask it, but nobody asked it. Well, have you ever thought about the Genesis record? No. But I have another question. And they asked me a question I couldn't answer. And so I'd go home and I'd study again. When enough of that happens, and the Bible says, study to show yourself approved that you might give to every man an answer for the hope that lies in you. You go home and you study that. You'll be better equipped. And sharing the gospel becomes so exciting. Oh, what if they ask me a question I can't answer? The Lord said, I am, you know, tell them I am who I am. Verse 16, go gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will heed your voice. And you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we might sacrifice to the Lord our God. Moses, go for it. It'll work. Just go for it. There's a great story I heard about Carl Henry. He's actually one of, he's older now, but one of uh, the foremost theologians of our time. Brilliant man. Written several books. When he was in college, he went out and did what we call open-air preaching. That's where you stand and you open your Bible and you just start talking in front of a theater or a college campus. And it takes a special kind of gift and calling. I've seen a lot of people do it. And it's like, I want to say, just turn it off. You just don't have it. It's be, you're being obnoxious or you're turning people away. But uh, he would go out there and effectively share his faith and trying to give good answers. And so there was an unbeliever who stood and watched this, and he thought, I've got just the question. And so he shouted out publicly, where did Cain get his wife? He said, sir, I don't know. When I get to heaven, I'll ask him. And he kept preaching, and what about Jonah? You believe that a whale can swallow a man, and he can live and remain three days, and then be vomited up on land and go, I mean, come on, you believe that? How did that happen? How is that scientifically possible? And again, Carl Henry said, Sir, I don't know, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. And the man said, How do you know he's going to be in heaven? Carl Henry said, Well, if he's not, then you can ask him. (laughs) 
It's a great response. He was witty. He didn't have all the answers, but he was witty. Look at verse 19. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst, and after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely, of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Notice how effortlessly God tells the future. He says, this, here's the details. This is what's going to happen. This is what Pharaoh is going to say. This is what the elders of Israel will say. And this is what they will do in giving you their jewelry. God knows your future in detail. Is that a comfort to you? Like Corey Ten Boom, survivor of Nazi concentration camps, said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future into the hands of a known God. God knows your future. And God never panics. God's never surprised. Something happens in your life that takes you off guard. We panic, but God never does. He sees it. He's still omnipotent. He's all-knowing. He's in control. Now, there are more excuses. There are several more, actually, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. But looks like the time is about up. I really wanted to get into the discussion of the nation of Israel, but I'll confine that till next week. We'll go a couple verses more and we'll stop with the first five verses. But next week we want to talk about this whole controversy of the land of Israel. Whose land is it? We have the Israelis saying it's our land, the Palestinians saying we've been here first, and the debate goes on. And since they're going into a new land that God promised them, but there's already occupants there in advance, that's a pretty hefty moral issue. But it would take too much time tonight to go through it, so what's your appetite for next week? Let's just look at this next excuse. And Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me, or listen to me, or my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord didn't appear to you. So the Lord said to him, What's that in your hand? Now God's asking him questions. I love it. Moses has all the questions. Now it's God's turn. Hey, what do you got in your hand, Moses? He said, a rod. This is a walking stick or a staff. He said, cast it on the ground. He cast it on the ground. It became a serpent. And Moses ran away from it. <laughs> this is the leader of the children of Israel. A snake. <sighs> It's funny. My son Nathan got a snake for one of his birthdays. And uh, it's this green snake. In fact, Nathan named him Slimy. So we had Slimy the snake living up in the bedroom. And uh, I used to handle snakes when I was a kid. I used to catch them. And, but I don't really like them. You know, I'll hold them and think, great, been there, done that, take them. I've had my thrills. It's not, But my wife... Loves them. She'll take it out of the cage and let the snake crawl around her and, and wash the cage out. And I'm looking and think, no, uh-uh, no way. And I kind of picture Moses and his wife. Moses runs away from the snake and his wife's standing there going, let me have that thing. No big deal. 
Moses ran away from it. And the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand, take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand, caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That, God goes on, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. An ordinary stick, an ordinary rod, something that shepherds walk around the desert with. When surrendered to the Lord, became an awesome tool. An awesome tool. Just a stick. But even a stick can become an awesome tool in the hands of God. How many times do we read about instances like this in the Bible? David's sling. Just a little thing that he carried around and hunted little bears and lions that attacked the sheep. But in the hands of God, he couldn't miss. Here comes Goliath. In the hands of God, that sling becomes an accurate weapon. What about the jawbone of a donkey? What kind of an effective military weapon is that? Oh, but Samson gets a hold of it, and the Spirit of God comes upon Samson, and he kills a thousand Philistines with it. What about torches and buckets? No big deal, but Gideon got a hold of a bunch of them, he and his 300 men, and started shouting and lighting torches and hitting the jars and the buckets, and it worked. The Midianites fled from before him. Here's my point. That which seems insignificant and foolish in the hands of God can become a mighty weapon. Why don't you surrender your sticks to God? Lord, here's my life. It's like a bunch of sticks. It's broken and fragmented. I don't have many talents. I, don't, I can't do this. I can't do that. But what I do have, I give to you. And I'm going to trust that you can work through me. I'm tired of living by flaky excuses, God. I know you've got something in store for me. So, Lord, take my life. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Put your hand in your bosom. He put it in his bosom. When he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. He said, put your hand again in your bosom. And so he put his hand in his bosom again, that is, under his shirt. Drew it out of his bosom. Behold, it was restored like the other flesh. Then it will be, if they do not believe you or heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river, pour it on dry land, and the water which you take from the river will become blood on dry land. Now again, after a burning bush, an audible voice, and signs like this. You know, if, if I was carrying a stick around and it turned into a snake, I mean, all those together, I'd, okay, 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 I believe you. But not Moses. This guy is El Worrywart. Just every possible thing. He's just so paranoid. The bottom line issue is not a willing, an, un, uh, an inability, as we will see next week. He's just simply not willing. He's using all sorts of excuses. But the real issue is his heart is hardened against the Lord. It's not, I can't do this. It's literally, I refuse to do it. In fact, he eventually says, look, send somebody else. I don't want to do it. I just refuse. There's a lot of people who say, oh, whatever God wants me to do, I'd love to do it. Yeah, whatever. When you get down to brass tacks, it's often not that at all. It's just God talk. It's an unwillingness. Moses hadn't made God the Lord of his life yet, even though he called him Lord, Lord. Well, Lord means you'll do whatever he says. <laughs> Several excuses, one after the other. 
Christian, has God been trying to get a hold of your life and use you? Maybe he's put some spiritual vision before you, some idea, and you thought, oh, wouldn't that be great if I could be involved in that? And maybe God's been nudging you lately. You're saying, oh, who am I? Sounds humble. It's not humility, it's stubbornness. When it gets down to it, if God has called you to do it, go for it. Try it. Step out. I only have a few loaves and fishes, a few sticks. No problem, give them to me. Let me have them. I'll bless people. I'll work in your life. What an adventure. Just say, Lord, here's my life. Go for it. What do you want to do? Some of you, God has been trying to get a hold of your life for the longest time. You're not yet born again. And you too have excuses. Well, I'm too young. I'll wait till I have got nothing left to live for. I just want to kind of use my life on my own self. And later on, I'll give my life to the Lord. But right now, I'm just too young, too alive. I'll wait. I'll wait till later on. I get a little more settled. I'll give my heart to the Lord. Don't worry. And so middle age comes. I'm too busy is the next excuse. I've got kids. I've got a job. I don't have time for any of this. And eventually the excuse might be, I'm too old. But eventually your life will pass. Then what are you going to say? I'm too dead? It's all over. There's no more chances. God has been demonstrating his love to you. People have been sharing the gospel with you. You know that tonight your heart isn't right with God. And God's been trying to grab a hold of it. Well, tonight's the night, friend. For you to say, oh, Lord, all right. Go for it. I give up. Take my life. Paint your picture in my life. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, you who love us so deeply, we're even amazed that you would choose to use human beings, but you do. And we're so grateful that you love us with an everlasting love. Lord, I pray for your children, those Christians here tonight, perhaps in that place of inactivity, just looking around, spectators, not involved. Lord, I pray that as you prompt their hearts, that there would be an obedience in all of our lives, a desire to be used, a quickness to our step, to be involved in what you've called us to do. There's only one life, and it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And Father, we also pray for maybe some friends who have come tonight, relatives who have not surrendered their life to Jesus Christ personally. We pray, Father, that tonight would be the night of surrender. 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 Be the night of surrender.